Snowman Podcast. Welcome back to the Snowman Podcast. I'm your host, as always, the Snowman. And folks, I've got a real good American story to tell you today. And it didn't even take place in America at the time it happened. It has been very near and dear to my heart and one of my favorite stories for over 20 years. I cannot say that about too many stories. It is the story of the Alamo. Now, if we were to cover everything there was to cover about the Alamo, it would take hours. Some have been able to narrow it down to just over an hour, but I'm not going to do that. I'm going to give you some of the basic facts, uh, share with you some of her most notable defenders, but also why I feel like it has a very good spiritual impact as well. I would first like to open up with a quote from legendary actor and director John Wayne when he was doing the making of the Alamo 1960, which was his passion for over 12 years. And he finally made it into reality. Um, so this is what he had to say about the story of the Alamo and the defenders. The men who fought here. How can you measure men? How can you measure courage and human dignity and a desire for freedom? Bowie, Crockett, Travis, and Dickinson, and the others that died in the Alamo, held off an army for 13 days, and it's hard to believe they even existed. They'd become legends even before the smoke of the battle had blown away. What kind of men were they? Well, we know that they died and were heroes. But nobody wants to die, and nobody just decided to be a hero. It has to be forced on you. That's what happened to them. It was forced on them because they were stuck with ideas like freedom and the rights of the individual. A hatred of dictators. Crockett, for instance, refused to sign the oath of allegiance to the government of Texas till they changed it to the Republican government of Texas. Living free meant a lot more to them than cowering in security. Now I'd like to ask you, what do you think first when you hear the words, the Alamo? Back in the day, those words rang a bell with a lot of people. But nowadays, a lot of young people have never even heard of the Alamo and the significance it has in American history. For me personally, I think of courage and determination, a belief in a just cause, just to name a few. The men who fought and died at the Alamo were some of the bravest men you'll ever hear about. And like how John Wayne described it, some of the bravest men were William Barrett Travis, Captain Armand Dickinson, Juan Seguin, James Bowie, and the man who is one of my personal heroes, Davy Crockett. The other defenders, well, don't worry, even as an amateur historian, I still don't know their names. Um, but rest assured, their names are not forgotten. Uh, they are forever linked with the small yet monumental adobe church in San Antonio de Bejar in Texas. One thing a lot of people don't know, nor I myself, till after um, I read Brian Kilmeade's book, Sam Houston and the Alamo Avengers, was that the Texicans truly didn't want independence at first. They simply wanted what our founding fathers wanted with Great Britain proper representation in Mexico City at the Governing Council. Now, a little backstory with that. Mexico was being ruled by a dictator at the time. 
but they were still trying to find their way. Um, a lot of Americans were moving to Texas because of the great land opportunities, and they were like, hey, why don't we get some representation down in Mexico City? And when men such as Ben Millam and Stephen Austin went down there to try and gain that, uh, they were thrown into prison. Nah, good sign. When a country is run by a dictator, it never, ever works out for diplomacy. Because the man is power hungry, he has his cronies already in place, and that is what Santa Ana was. Antonio Lopez de Santa Ana. That's a mouthful, isn't it? He was a cruel, vicious man. But he still had enough people in the government who did not think the way he did. And they were able to secure the release of Ben Millam and Stephen Austin. And they hightailed it back to Texas. Even though that was still under Mexican control, they felt safe there. And they knew before they even left Mexico City that the only way to have proper representation was by declaring their independence from Mexico. Which meant a war. And they were very ill-equipped for that war. But they had one thing on their side. Determination. And sometimes that can go a lot farther than the other physical elements of war. So how did we truly start with the Battle of the Alamo? Well, there's a lot of stuff going on, but it really begins in the fall of 1835. And Texas volunteers under the command of Ben Millam and Jim Bowie are able to capture the town of San Antonio de Bejar for a Mexican general cause, who is, in fact, Santa Ana's cousin. They force him to surrender, and he leaves a large, has to leave a large quantity of arms and ammunition. Uh, arms is military terms for guns, just in case any of you happen to be confused. While the battle was a success for the Texians, it would prove very costly, and they lost one of their core commanders when Ben Millam was shot through the head during the battle. Now, I'm going to be perfectly honest here, folks. Ben Millam could have avoided being killed, but he took a page out of the old officer-in-charge playbook of, let me get a better look at what's going on by leaving cover, looking through my spyglass, and making myself a perfect target. Which basically is like hanging a sign in front of you that reads, Hi, I'm the guy in charge. Shoot me. I dare ya. Well, they took him up on that and they shot him. And he dropped it. You know, old Ben Millum died what I like to call a stupid death. But, back to the main story. <laughs> oh, that still cracks me. I'm just thinking, like, I mean... How, how stupid are... I mean, this guy was huge. And he just basically stepped right out in the middle of nowhere. Stepped right in the middle of the open. Said, hey, I'm going to take a better look at you guys. Bang. Oh, that smarts. All right, sorry. But, all right, now, truly, back to the main story. So, after the capture of San Antonio de Bejar, a majority of Texian forces went back home. 
as they are mostly militia or volunteers and they needed to tend to their families. So, back up north, yet old General Sam Houston, who is by now more or less the commander of the Texas Army, little as it was, inefficient as it was, he was their commander. He knew the dangers of the Mexican Army and that they were a force not many could trifle with. Now, Jim Bowie arrived at Sam Houston's headquarters. He had left just prior to the main battle of San Antonio. He had taken place in skirmishes leading up to the battle, but uh, looks like he had been he had already left by the time the battle commenced. But he brought dispatches to Houston from the current commander of San Antonio, a man by the name of James Neal. He's pretty much ineffective for the rest of the story, other than he leaves to tend his family, who were, who had become very ill in mid-February, and leaves command of the garrison to a South Carolinian lawyer named William Barrett Travis, who had been appointed lieutenant colonel in the Texican Army. Now, Houston was a military genius. He had fought in the War of 1812 and in the Indian Wars and knew battle tactics. And he had seen the Alamo. And he knew it was in bad shape and he sent orders with Bowie telling Travis and Neil, who he did not know had left, to blow up the Alamo and retreat north back to where Houston was. So, yeah, Jim Bowie, one of the heroes of the Alamo, was sent with orders to blow it up. Does that make any sense? Well, here's the rest of the story. When Jim Bowie got back, he's he changed his mind for two reasons. First, he saw how his, the men there had been reinforcing the old mission rather well and placing cannons in strategic places and it really impressed him. And unfortunately, they also he also found out that they had very few oxen, and that was the main way they could transport the heavy cannons back up north. So there was like only a couple of sets of oxen, and they had way too many cannon, and it was already super rainy and muddy. So it wasn't like dry ground, and that would have made it nigh on impossible to even take the cannon and the other reason why he changed his mind was because he became deathly ill and I mean like almost dead before he even uh, knew what happened Um, many believe that he either got typhoid or tuberculosis had set in um, its, like, fatal course, I guess. But he was more or less confined to his bed the remainder of his life. But shortly again thereafter, you have the most famous man of the Battle of the Alamo arrive. And that he arrived on February 8th, 1836. Davy Crockett. Decked out in buckskin hunting clothes and a coonskin cap, carrying along his old trusty rifle, Betsy, he arrived with only a few other volunteers, but his arrival was a huge morale booster. 
In fact, when he left the United States and his departure speech from Congress was, you all can go to hell and I will go to Texas. Crockett was a legend in his own time. A famous frontiersman and Indian fighter, congressman like I just said, and when a hoedown started, he was an incredible fiddler. He had pretty much been everywhere and done everything. He was also considered the finest shot there. So, yeah, he, he's, a, he's a big, big, big morale booster. Now, Bowie and Travis knew his reputation. And they even offered him command of the fort. But he refused. He's like, I am no more than a volunteer and a high private. So, you guys are the commanders. They've been looking to you. You know the layout. You stay in command. And they realized that he was right. But they still trusted him. And they're like, we still want you to take command of a certain portion. And he was like, okay, I noticed you got quite a number of Tennessee volunteers here. So you give us a spot and we'll defend it to the last. Well, they do. They give him command of the South Wall, which is the least fortified. Basically, all it was was a palisade and crumbling walls on either side. Talk about basically a death sentence. And a death sentence already commenced. But he's like, alright, we'll do it. And while the south wall was the weakest point, it was not how the Mexicans breached and defeated the defenders. So, you have on February 23rd, Mexican forces arrive in San Antonio. Now, a large amount of the defenders, I did not know this until recently... A large amount of the defenders had been in town having a drunken party because they didn't know how close the advance guard of the Mexican army truly was. Talk about, oh crap, grab as much as you can and flee. Well, most of them were able to do that. I think a few weren't able to make it out in time and so they were captured. But the, those that didn't make it back to the Alamo slammed the gates shut and the siege began. There was only about... 150 men inside the two-acre-wide fortress, and they would need roughly five times that amount to defend the walls properly. But those men were not there, so they had to make do. Travis sent out couriers trying to get desperately needed reinforcements, and one of the men that was selected was Juan Seguin. Since he knew the territory so well, he was a perfect fit just like James Bowie but since James Bowie was basically dying of typhoid or tuberculosis uh, he was no longer able to make a any courier runs so once again was one of the men chosen and he departed with dispatches trying to get word out that they needed help but he didn't know that when he left, he would never see his compatriots again. One of the couriers who made it out made it to Gonzales and returned with 32 men. That was another huge morale booster. While it's a far cry from the amount of men they needed, they cheered for them as if they were, for they had answered the call and came to their aid. 
because every single day more Mexican troops arrived until they numbered 4,500 to over 6,000. And then the Hebel himself arrived, Santa Ana. Now, like I said, Santa Ana was a cruel man to other factions of Mexico, controlled territories. But he was also a cruel man to his own troops. They had been putting down other revolts all across Mexico. And then when he heard about Texas going crazy, he put a forced march through a very cold and rainy winter up to the Rio Grande and beyond to deal with the Texians. His men were exhausted, malnourished, but he pushed them hard until they arrived. When they did so, they were basically dead on their feet. I mean, these guys were exhausted. And somehow, they still managed to be able to fight. Now, maybe that was because if they didn't fight, they would be killed. I'm not sure. But Santa Ana saw that the certain number of men were in the Alamo. He's like, all right, I'll give you a shot to surrender. So he sent a dispatcher out. Dispatcher came under a flag of truce and offered the Texans one last chance to surrender. Now, here comes one of the boldest and legendary moves from any commander in history. Travis listened to the terms set forth by Santa Ana, and in reply to the demands, he fired a cannon shot. Which meant they would rather fight and die than surrender. If they had, Santa Ana most likely would have violated their parole and murdered them like he would do with the Goliath garrison shortly thereafter. Santa Ana was outraged. He ordered his men to raise a blood-red flag from the steeple of San Fernando Church in the town and had his band play the Deguello, both of which meant no quarter. Even if the defenders surrendered, they would not be spared, no matter who they were. The second day of the siege, Travis sent out a courier with a letter that has now become infamous. In it, Travis describes his predicament and also determination to fight to the death if it may come to that. I would like to read to you what Travis wrote because its significance is worth more than many historians' commentary on the subject. Commandant of the Alamo, Bejar, February 24th, 1836. To the people of Texas and all Americans in the world, fellow citizens and compatriots, I am besieged by a thousand or more Mexicans under Santa Ana. I have sustained a continual bombardment and cannonade for 24 hours and have not lost a man. The enemy has demanded a surrender at discretion, otherwise the garrison are to be put to the sword if the fort is taken. I have answered the demand with a cannon shot, and our flag still waves proudly from the walls. I shall never surrender or retreat. Then I call on you in the name of liberty, of patriotism, of everything dear to the American character, to come to our aid, with all dispatch. 
The enemy is receiving reinforcements daily and will no doubt increase to three or 4,000 in four or five days. If this call is neglected, I am determined to sustain myself as long as possible and die like a soldier who never forgets what is due his own honor and that of his country. Victory or death, William Barrett Travis, Lieutenant Colonel, Commandant. P.S. The Lord is on our side. When the enemy appeared in sight, we had not three bushels of corn. We have since found in deserted houses 80 or 90 bushels and gotten into the walls 20 or 30 head of beeves. So, even under dire circumstances, Travis believed God was on their side. And I believe he was as well. Even though it didn't end so well, I believe God was in the mix. There is one last pivotal moment that occurred before the final battle. The legendary line in the sand. Near the end of the siege, the defenders heard there would be no more reinforcements coming. I want you to imagine yourself there. You've been withstanding the constant drone of no quarter on trumpets, the non-stop bombardments of cannons against the crumbling adobe protecting you, the lack of food and water, very little ammunition, and the constant fear of death. What would you do? Well, honestly, what, what would you do? The defenders at this point had already pushed back two attacks. They all knew that the next attack would most likely be the last. Travis called the defenders together in the compound and told them they were free to go if they chose to. He was determined to stay and fight with his small command of regulated troops, which numbered roughly 20 to maybe 25 men. The rest were volunteers, and they could leave if they wanted to. Every man there then watched as Travis drew his saber and drew a line in the sand. Travis then stood and faced the men directly. Those who are prepared to give their lives for freedom's cause, cross over the line. I want you to again stop and ponder. I've already listed the hardships you've been dealing with. Now you've been given the opportunity to leave without condemnation. Would you take that chance? Or would you maybe perhaps feel a surge of patriotic pride swelling within you? knowing that you have to stand your ground even if the odds are against you on all fronts? Would you be willing to die for a cause you believed in? Something you've shared continually about to your friends and family, something you've rushed to defend and are now trapped because of that decision. What would you do? The defenders, slowly, one by one, crossed up the line. Even Jim Bowie, who was laid up on a cot, barely alive, asked to be carried over. Eventually, all of the men crossed, save one. Luis Rose, a French volunteer. No man thought ill of him for refusing to cross over, and they helped him go over the wall where he managed to slip through the Mexican lines and escape to Louisiana. The story of Travis drawing a line in the sand is said to be a myth but it became a legend even before the smoke of the battle cleared. I believe this to have occurred the day before the final assault was made. The volunteers, they made their choice. They were willing to live by it. And so they returned to their posts and waited for the inevitable. I truly wonder how many of those men were able to sleep. 
I believe most of them laid awake long into the night, some writing letters to loved ones, perhaps a few pulling a cork and having one last drink of whiskey. All, I believe, stayed up remembering the good times they had had in life, till weariness finally overcame, and they slept one last sleep. Before dawn the next day, the attack commenced. Santa Ana launched an attack on all fronts. The defenders, drowsy with sleep, leapt to their battle stations as troops stormed the walls and cannon fire broke the stillness of the night. Travis, asleep in his quarters, awoke and grabbed his shotgun, running for his position on the north wall, cheering his men, telling them to give the Mexicans hell. Reaching his spot, he looked over the wall and fired a shotgun at the Mexican troops below. Moments later, he fell from a shot to the head and died. One of the first defenders to fall but far from the last forgotten. The Mexicans breached the north wall soon after and overran the compound. The defenders fired every gun they could find, inflicting heavy casualties. They turned their own cannons inward to fire into the thrall of the Mexican troops with anything they could find. Chains, scrap iron, nails, rocks, literally anything. Captain Dickinson ordered his battery to open fire before he too fell at his post. Davy Crockett and his fellow Tennesseans fought tooth and nail as they retreated, using tomahawks, knives, pistols, and the butts of their rifles, till they barricaded themselves in one of the innermost rooms of the chapel. Jim Bowie, although weak from illness, tried to defend himself with his infamous knife and pistols. Legend holds he was able to kill a few soldiers before being bayoneted to death. But from what we know, he was far too ill to be even able to lift his head. It is said that the troops raised his lifeless body over their heads while still skewered by their bayonets till they were drenched in his blood. That's a pleasant thought and picture image for you. <clears throat> As the battle waned, the some of the Mexican troops were really getting to the innermost rooms where Crockett and the others were. Fortunately, or not so fortunately, a cool-headed officer was close at hand and told the men to spare Crockett and the others who were there. They were then brought before Santa Ana and he was told he was looking at the infamous Davy Crockett. They're like, you know, we may be able to still save our reputation if we maybe spare this guy. Um, I mean, he's a legend, we don't want to lose Texas altogether. I mean, we're still fighting a war. I mean, if we kill him, we're in big trouble. Santa Ana refused and kept his word about no survivors and ordered the men executed. None of the defenders survived. To add insult to injury, Santa Ana ordered the bodies of the defenders burned on pyres so they could not receive Christian burials. News of the massacre spread like wildfire. Men started showing up from all over to list and fight for Texas independence. Men wanted to avenge the defenders of the Alamo, for they were not just other Texans. They were friends, family, fellow soldiers. I mean, they knew each other. And to see that they had been slaughtered and then their bodies burned 
was devastating. And they were not going to just sit idly by any longer. But then they heard a story that was far, far worse than the Alamo. Santa Ana committed an atrocity that even in current days would get him hung for war crimes. He had forced the Goliad garrison to surrender. He had cornered them and they were told that if they surrendered, they would be given full quarter and be able to go back home in a couple of weeks. Santa Ana did not keep his word. We're not sure if he gave them his word to begin with or if a fellow officer had, but in the long run, Santa Ana ordered them executed as well. Over 400 men were shot point blank despite being prisoners of war. This atrocity gave even more determination to the Texan army. And within a month and a half, they had organized enough men to launch an attack at San Jacinto Creek. They attacked yelling, Remember the Alamo! Remember Goliad! And they routed the Mexican army in 18 minutes. 18 minutes! Santa Ana proved he was a coward by trying to escape in a private's uniform. He was caught and fortunately brought before Sam Houston. The men wanted to hang him right then and there, but Houston instead made Santa Ana sign over the entire Texas territory and surrender. Santa Ana did so, and thus the Republic of Texas gained its independence. The Alamo now stands as a military shrine and national park. It has inspired hundreds of books, both fiction and nonfiction, papers and podcasts and movies. In dramatic interpretations, the 2004 film starring Billy Bob Thornton as Davy Crockett is hailed as the most authentic. However, it did very poorly at the box office. While other interpretations, such as John Wayne's 1960 version and... Yeah, also my personal favorite, Davy Crockett, King of the Wild Frontier, which only focuses a small portion on the Alamo. They did rather well. And I think I know why. The events of the Alamo are now the stuff of legend. And sometimes when the truth is found out, people would rather believe what they've heard for so long. Without refusing to acknowledge that the truth does exist, but allowing the idea that some, if not all, the legendary events took place as well. A line from the movie The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance sums it up nicely. When the legend becomes fact, print the legend. Now, as I said, I consider the Alamo a spiritual inspiration as well as a patriotic one. For these men believed in their cause and were willing to die for it. Shouldn't we as Christians be willing to do the same? We've been called to spread the gospel no matter where we are and no matter the danger. Let's take inspiration from the Alamo defenders and fight the evil powers of Satan and his cronies till we have achieved victory through Jesus Christ. Fire the cannon shot and say no to surrendering to sin. Fight tooth and nail, folks. Because we are in a war that is unequivocally the most dangerous of our lifetime. So I say again, Fire the cannon shot, draw the line in the sand, 
and stand your ground. Storybooks tell they were all cut low, but the truth of it is, this just ain't so. Their spirits will live and their legends grow as long as we remember the Alamo. Well, folks, I would certainly like to thank you for listening to that episode of the Snowman Podcast. I know this is another bit of a long one, um, but this is one of my favorite stories, and I really wanted to share it with you. Um, and I really hope you enjoyed listening to it, and I also hope that you learned something that perhaps you didn't know before. Um, I would really encourage you to read uh, various books about the Alamo, including Davy Crockett's Autobiography, the Alamo storyline is naturally near the end, but it is still well worth reading. Sam Houston and the Alamo Avengers by Brian Kilmeade. This book focuses mainly on Sam Houston, but does include valuable information about the battle. A Line in the Sand, The Diary of Lucinda Lawrence. Um, I read this book as a kid, and it was really good. It tells the story from the perspective of a young girl whose family and friends determine what to do with the turmoil leading up to and during the Texas Revolution. Um, the Gates of the Alamo by Stephen Harrigan. The Alamo and Beyond, A Collector's Journey by Phil Collins. Yes, the famous drummer. I have not personally read his book yet, but I fully intend to. Other sources I use for this podcast are thealamo.org, which is the official website for the Alamo, history.com, forward slash Alamo, briancrandall.com forward slash eight movies about the Alamo, and Wikipedia Battle of the Alamo. A lot of people like to knock Wikipedia, but for basic research, it is the best place to get information from. So once again, thank you for listening, and I'll see you now, yeah? How does Davy Crockett like his pie? Alamode. Oh, that was bad.